Welcome to the Philosophy of Love podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking at the economic and social forces underlying love, marriage, and dating. I'll discuss Eva Lutz's book, Why Love Hurts, which outlines the unique ways we moderns suffer in romantic relationships. I'll also speak with UBC economist Marina Adshade, author of the book Dollars and Sex, How Economics Influences Sex and Love. We'll be talking about changing social norms, the future of marriage, and the impact of advancing sexbot technology. Elutz argues that the cultural and institutional arrangements surrounding love make finding and nurturing intimate relationships difficult, causing us to suffer in new and uniquely modern ways. What's more, our societal paradigms obscure these issues because we're steeped in a psychological and individualist understanding of the self, making us believe that failures in our relationships are the realm of individual responsibility. Because our primary level of analysis is the individual, we try to fix institutional problems with individual solutions. In the name of healing our relationships, we buy books, read articles, and go to therapy to address our childhood experiences or our unconscious self-sabotage. But meanwhile, the real cause of our suffering goes unnoticed. Elutz emphasizes that romantic relationships are not separate from social and economic conditions, and that the problems we face are the result of how relationships are structured by these forces. Let's look at some of Elutz's main points. She argues that the way we choose a partner has changed, both in terms of the qualities we look for and the way that the courting process unfolds. For example, one's choice of mate used to depend on his social position and moral character. Both of these could be assessed by his adherence to publicly recognizable social norms, making a person's value in the marriage market fairly objective. Now, however, a partner is chosen for his psychological compatibility, capacity for emotional intimacy, and sex appeal. These properties are much more difficult to assess, they're not embedded in social rituals, and they're more subjective, making choosing a partner more complicated. We also have demanding and sometimes contradictory expectations of a romantic relationship. We want a love that is mysterious, intense, and passionate, yet we also expect to live with our partner and be around them 24-7. Because of these complex and ambiguous choice criteria, we're more apt to feel ambivalent about our partners. Our choices tend to be based on emotions and intuition, and these things are unstable. The challenges involved in choice are exacerbated by the larger pool from which we choose a partner. A larger dating market encourages the switch in mating strategies from satisfying to maximizing. Maximizing in decision-making is trying to achieve the best possible outcome given one's options, whereas satisfying is trying to achieve a good enough outcome. A maximizing strategy has been linked to a fear of missing out and lower satisfaction with what one does choose. In relationships, this manifests as a fear of commitment, especially for men, since women are under greater pressure to reproduce at a younger age. The current dating institutions also catalyze commitment phobia. Nowadays, we're more apt to ground love in a person's emotions rather than, say, obligation, and our folk psychological models paint reason in opposition to emotion. It then becomes illegitimate to ask for commitment because we can't predict the way our emotions will unfold, and to ask a partner to constrain her emotions undermines her autonomy. Another element of the modern condition in love is the greater importance of love and sex for one's sense of self-worth in society. In other words, being sexually and romantically desirable has become a bigger part of social value in general, making people, especially women, more dependent on romantic validation. Finally, the therapy industry's emphasis on self-love, the idea we saw in the first episode, that someone can only love you if you love yourself, 
exacerbates this problem because it denies the fundamentally social nature of self-value. It puts the blame on the individual and asks them to create by themselves something that can only be made socially. Women are especially disadvantaged because their self-worth is more tied up in successful love and relationships, and because, in a patriarchal society, both men's and women's recognition depends on men. Elutz's account helps us to see the difficulties we face as a step in the evolution of romantic relationships. Given the changing role of marriage in our society, romantic relationships have become more intimate and more about compatibility between personalities. This way of structuring relationships has created new problems. We're more indecisive, more ambivalent, and more reluctant to commit. Pop culture, from self-help books to romantic comedies, paints these as essential features of men and women. Especially popular, though hopefully on its way out, is the narrative that men are by nature promiscuous and reluctant to commit, and women are eager to commit and need to trick men into doing so. Elutz argues that such issues are not the result of essential features of men and women, and the roles have even been reversed in previous social arrangements. Because our culture privileges a psychological understanding of the self, when we struggle in our relationships, we're led to believe that there's something wrong with us. But there isn't. We're just enacting the challenges of living in this culture at this point in time. And when we fail to look at the social, we come at the problem in entirely the wrong way. To get another perspective on how economic conditions are shaping our romantic and sexual relationships, I talked to Marina Adshade, a professor of economics at the University of British Columbia. Her book, Dollars and Sex, looks at topics such as marriage, online dating, contraceptives, and prostitution from an economic lens. Professor Adshade also teaches an undergraduate course at UBC called The Economics of Sex and Love, and has discussed these issues in numerous publications and popular media. You can find out more about her work at her website, marinaadshade.com. So when I told people about this economic analysis of love and marriage, everyone gets kind of skeptical about it. Um, and I think maybe partly it's just because we're idealistic and we want to think that love isn't rational and we don't make rational decisions about love. Um, and I think maybe it's also because... Uh, there's a concern that some of the assumptions we make in economic theory don't hold when it comes to human relationships, like transitivity or maximizing personal preferences. So do you think there's a limit to the economic analysis? Um, I, well, first of all, I, it may be among philosophers or skepticism, but when I tell other people... Uh, that I do the economics of sex and love, I think people really connect to it. And in fact, it's funny, the most common response I get is that um, people say, wow, economics and sex, those two things don't go together. But then if you give them a couple minutes to click it over in their brain, they connect and they and I find that they all kind of connect in their own way, right? Um, and so I think it, it really does speak to somewhat to people. But, you know, I... I are there limits to to how economic theory can approach love? I think that there is, but I think there's limits to how any discipline could approach love. You mean you could say exactly the same thing about, um, you know, neurologists who study love, or philosophers who study love, or sociologists who study love. Um, but in terms of you know what the economic stories can tell us, is that the, the idealized way that people don't um, choose love just doesn't hold out in, in the world, real world, right? If people um, kind of randomly fell in love, we would see, um, we would see no racial sorting, mm -hmm. right? We would see people with 
postgraduate degrees, married to people who were, you know, dropped out of high school. Uh, we would see, we wouldn't see people in, you know, um, similar religious groups dating people in other similar religious groups, people with political beliefs dating people with particular political beliefs. People clearly make choices about who they fall in love with. Um, and we, we, we don't see randomization. Um, and even over time, we're seeing more and more uh, sorting over personal qualities. And so I, that suggests to me that there's a market on which people are searching. And then when that market clears, you end up with somebody who's very similar to yourself because those are the choices that you make. And maybe the one exception to that is the racial sorting, which is, is declining over time. Right, we're seeing more interracial marriage, um, you know, in because society, social barriers to those types of arrangements are coming down. So that's the one thing that I think has changed. But in other regards, we're we're seeing more sorting than we ever had before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you say more about the concept in your book, the shift from productive to consumptive marriage, and the lead up to the assortative mating? A productive marriage is one in which the partners form a productive unit working together to create goods and services. Because historically many goods and services were not in the market sector, it made sense for the partners to have non-overlapping spheres of specialization. A consumptive marriage is one in which the partners primarily consume goods and services. Here it's more beneficial for the partners to have similar interests and personalities. Yeah, you know, I, um, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this it just actually in recent months, you know, I, it's funny because I find myself talking about economics and relationships in a time in which uh, relationships are less about economic stories than they ever have been in the past. Um, and, you know, it's funny because a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's more about economics today than before. That's, that's not true, right? In the past, men and women came together um, in part because women had, didn't have the economic means to support themselves, um, it, but in part too because the, the 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 nature of the economy meant that it was very difficult for men to live on their own. Right, they, people needed them each other in marriage. Right, in the absence of having a market that provides all of the goods that uh, women have traditionally supplied. Um, men needed wives, right? And women needed husbands. And it was very much an economic relationship. It, it's not that people didn't love each other, but it's the idea of love was secondary to the relationship. You know, you married and you hope that you fell in love over time. And sometimes you did and sometimes you didn't. And that really was the nature of, of marriage historically. Um, but, you know, today marriage is more about love, right? It's more about... Uh, two people coming together to, to, for the joy of sharing their lives together. Um, so in that respect, it's, it's much more like, less like an economic story than it has been historically, which doesn't mean that as an economist, we can't describe uh, the way of the world. Uh, but the models that, that were developed, especially in the 1970s by economists, they really don't apply as much as they used to. They help us understand what, where, what marriage was in the past. And they help us understand where marriage is going in the future. Um, but clearly there's a part of the story that they don't describe. And that has to do with people choosing to be with people because it makes them happy. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I had that thought too, that marriage was more, more of an economic transaction before than it is now. So how do you think, what do you think economics can tell us about the way that marriage is going to change in the future? So I think that... Um, I think that what economics tells us is that 
Um, marriage is um, an institutional arrangement. And by that, I mean uh, the way that, that marriage is structured in society is dictated by society because it is the arrangement um, that best suits society's interests, or at least has best suited society's interests historically. Um, and by this, I don't mean like traditional heterosexual marriage the way that we see it in the West. I mean, this is true across societies. Different societies have had different um, ways of organizing marriage, but they chose their marriage systems optimally um, uh, in the sense that they chose the marriage systems that were in the best interest of the people who lived in the society at that time. Um, and so, you know, traditionally the, the, the optimal marriage arrangement for society has been one, we have men and women coming together, for, forming these productive units. And, and the reason why that was optimal is because men and women were very different from one another. And so they're essentially experiencing the gains from trade, you know, just like you, you know, get a high tech country like Canada trades with a labor, cheap labor country like China, that's optimal for both countries. Marriage has been like that. And so society has adopted that form of marriage institution because it was economically efficient to have that form of marriage institution. Um, over time, as the need to arrange marriage that way or when that stops being optimal, um, I think that allows for institutional change. And we have seen institutional change, uh, the adoption of... Um, the revision of our laws in, in 2004, 2005 to allow for same-sex marriage are a direct reflection of this, right? We no longer see marriage as being two people who are very different from each other coming together. And once we ad adapted our perspective on that, it was much easier for us to think about two people who are the same gender coming together uh, and forming a marriage. And this is going to continue to evolve over time. And so what that means, what economic tells us is that is is the uh, efficient arrangement economically um, starts to change? There will institutional change will follow, and institutional change will allow for different sorts of arrangements. Um, if I had to to predict into the future, my prediction would be that given enough time, and I mean t social change is incredibly slow, as you probably know, um, but given enough time, I think that. Um, uh, marriage will move away from an institutional arrangement that's dictated by the society in which we live, and marriage will start to become an individual arrangement. And so what marriage is in our society eventually will become whatever marriage is to that individual, um, not what marriage is to society as a whole. And uh, and so I think that they, what the economic story tells us is that the future will hold more flexibility. Um, and the reason why that's an economic story um, is because we know that in the past that when economic systems changed, marriage changed as well. And uh, so there's no reason to think that wouldn't happen in the future. We live in a paradox now a little bit because in a lot of cultures at a lot of different times, we made the distinction, we made a very strict distinction between love and marriage. And marriage was this economic institution and love was this irrational thing that almost undermined the first thing and now we've melded together these two ideas and it's not always an easy partnership so it seems like now we're in a time where we're trying to negotiate those two things into one relationship yeah so i mean it's been in western society anyway um the idea of love outside of marriage has been pretty prohibited for a long time 
I know that there were ancient societies where they were seen to be very separate, and there are other other societies when they're seen to be separate. But you know, uh, in some respects, we've kind of societies just like stifled love in the way that it stifled sexuality, right? The Victorian era is an extremely good example, right? In the Victorian era, uh, marriage was not about sex. Sex is sex with sex, the importance of sex within marriage is actually a fairly modern phenomenon. It wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century that people actually started considering sex as an important component of marriage. Actually, I shouldn't say that because, of course, before the Victorian era, um, people did, right? But we went through this, you know, this whole kind of post-industrial revolution period where marriage became very disconnected from, from sex and love and became more productive, more about production than it ever had been in history and it has, it never has been since. So we had this kind of historic anomaly. Um, and so now we're in a place where um, we're, we're, we're in an economic system that hasn't existed before. And so I think that that, that causes us to reflect on, on, on the nature of marriage, but in a way that is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging because, you know, a lot of people still want to marry. Um, a lot of people still want to have monogamous marriage. Clearly that's the case. Um, there's, there's lots of people who want what we consider a traditional arrangement. Um, but as a society, we're becoming more and more open to alternatives. And, um, part of that alternative is clearly the separation between marriage and love and part of that separation is the disconnect, the uncoupling of um, marriage and sex. Um, you know, I've, I've, there, there is a, a movement afoot, and it, it's small, in which people um, suggest that that marriage, the purpose of marriage, is coming together to the creation of a household to have children, right? Mm -hmm. But if people want to have sex and love, that those things could be sought elsewhere. Um, and then in fact, that perhaps it's actually even in the best interest of the children for them to be sought elsewhere. The, 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 the creation of the household is actually for the purpose of the children. It's an unusual um, approach. But these dialogues are happening, and I think that that is something that, that, that takes us to an entirely new place um, in, in society. So we're, we're negotiating and renegotiating the institution in a way that we weren't doing before. We just took it for granted. Um, it's not really a matter of taking the institution for granted because the institution is kind of societally imposed. Um, we we have our institution. Uh, it's not up to us to say what our institution is. Not in the the short run. Not as individuals. As is as a society collectively, we can change the institution, and that's really what's happened when same sex marriage. Right? It, society collectively decided to change the institution. So it's not really so much taking it for granted. Um, but now I think there's there's pushing back against the idea of the institution full stop, where the institution is societally imposed. And, and a movement towards, um, well, it's, it, it's a perfect representation of individualism, right? Um, but, you know, in the absence of marriage being a productive unit, it's, it's not clear what role society has, if any, in... in, in um, and dictating to individuals what marriage is. Right, so we're moving from a time when we needed marriage for entrance into society, for participation in society, and now we participate in society as individuals. So now the role of this institution is not at all relevant in the same way. Well, you know, as an economist, I would say the role of marriage has, has been survival, 
right? And and survival survival of of men, survival of, of women, survival of children. Um, you know, the ability to to uh, meet our, our biological imperative to have children. You know, all of that marriage has made that possible historically. Um, but we're in a place where those things, where the, it no longer really plays that role, right? Children can grow outside, out, up outside of marriage and in, in, in a supportive society uh, can not just survive, but it can flourish, right? Um, and we're, we're seeing more and more of this. So then it, it calls into question what the role of marriage is, period. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I wanted to ask you with respect to changing roles in marriage is as women acquire more financial independence and power in society, do you think roles will start shifting in the household? What I think will happen over time is an increasing ability of, of uh, women to negotiate that right? More bargaining power for women in the home to, um, to find an, uh, an arrangement, right? Um, it, the, in which there is a fair distribution of work in the home, right? I mean, what, what is um, surprising in the time that we live that it, is that in households where both people are working um, and the woman earns more than the man, um, that even in those households, women do more than 50% of the housework. Um, that's a that's a that's a surprising outcome, right? And I think that we would expect to see this uh, shift over time. But you know, I think that, that this this is an issue that goes back to goes back even further. You know, in in Canada, by the time a, a woman is seventeen years old, she's contributed about a thousand hours more to household work um, than her brother. And and. And, you know, for people who want to say, oh, yeah, but the men are out, like, changing the oil in the car and mowing the lawn or whatever it is they think that boys do, um, these numbers include all of that, too, right? Um, and so women actually, you know, if you believe that there's such a thing as on-the-job training, yeah. we train, women are well-trained mm -hmm. to do household work. And so by the time they end up in within marriage, mm -hmm. they are often the more productive person within the home because they have that experience. Mm -hmm. So really... I mean, it's, it, it doesn't just need to be a story about economic independence. It has to be a story about the way that we raise our sons. Mm, so I wanted to talk to you about online dating. And you, s you mentioned in your book that it's like a thick market. It's more efficient. It allows us a lot of options so we get what we want more quickly. Um, though I'm also interested in the idea that it's in some ways way less efficient because we expect much more from the relationship because we have so many choices. Um, you know, I, yeah, so, so I, I've, I've heard this, other people say this, and I, I, I just personally have a hard time imagining how that could possibly be a bad thing, right? I mean, this is often put towards me as a bad thing, um, and a lot of time that's by men, right? <laughs> And that, that somehow, somehow having more choice and and being fussy about what you get is is a bad thing, right? And it, and and so, so the market is more efficient is because you have more choice, and maybe people search longer because they have more choice. But ultimately, that has to be a good thing, right? I mean, we want people to be with the people who make them happy, yeah. not with the people that they have to to settle for, yeah. right? If I was to defend the view, the one thing I would say is. Um, there's a lot of cheap talk in online dating and the abundance of choice 
makes it seem like there's a higher opportunity cost for choosing one person. And then we get very afraid of commitment. Um, so maybe the search takes longer than it needs to take or something like that. Yeah, so I mean, I think that um, it's the, the later people get married, the better <laughs> anyway, <laughs> right? I mean, so, so uh, the probability of a marriage lasting after you know, the age of 29 or 30, is it's just so much higher than it is when they're younger. So while I can see that you might think that, or anybody might think that this idea that people are constantly shopping mm -hmm. is necessarily a bad thing, it, I think that from a societal perspective, it, it's not so, not so bad. I mean, there's no prizes given out for entering early into <laughs> marriage, right? I mean, I guess, I guess there's a fertility prize if you wanted to have a whole pack of children, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, I um, yeah, I think the problem is I think that people should not think of online shopping for mates as online dating because you're not really dating online, right? Um, you're you're looking to see what is available, and 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 then um, really, where people are, if they're really optimizing, they should be moving those relationships offline to the real world as quickly as possible. And that's because, you know, what matters, you know, we talked, we started off talking about love, what matters in, in love and companionship, it really doesn't have like a whole, a whole lot to do with things that you could observe online. It has to do with a whole variety of different things, like the way the person smells, how they laugh at your jokes. It's like things, these things matter enormously, right? Um, and you can observe those online. So I think that that's probably one of the problems with the market is that people think they are dating um, when they're talking to somebody online, but they're not really dating, right? They're just shopping. Um, you know, Tinder actually, in some respects, has, has a, is an improvement, right? Because Tinder encourages people to meet quickly, right? Get that part over with, right? No back and forth going on, right? Um, and I think that that's that's I think that's one of the reasons why those apps are becoming so popular. And I think that they will. And I think eventually the idea of an online um, dating, I think that will that it, it's it's seen its day. It's been uh, 20, 20 years now, right? Since the online first online dating site. I think the technology is coming and going, and we're moving off off our computers and onto our phones, and I think that changes the nature of the market altogether. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, uh, I think that the, I think that part of the issue is the perspective, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of goes back to what we were saying before about the limits of economic theory, too. Like maybe we make decisions in a very different way in that early part where we're just selecting people. We have a certain set of preferences and we want to filter people out. And then in the second part where we actually meet this person face to face, the decision process might be very different. Right. I mean, I, I think this is this would, this would be true. There's a, a certain element to this of all markets, right? Mm -hmm. So say that you want to buy a, a shirt, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, economic theory is like you th there's the price of the shirt and you buy the shirt but of course there's other things about the shirt that matter to you other than the price right uh, in relationships there are things that we think matter to us that are measurable right things like the person's education or their income or their height and stuff like that um, but at the end of the day there's you know millions of other things um, that matter to us more right um, and so we can shop for those those qualities that we 
that those narrowly defined qualities that we think matter. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, what will matter is, is how you feel when you, you meet. And this actually kind of takes us back to where we started, the idea of, of choosing who we love, right? And that is that there's, there's a, a kind of a narrow categories that we will put people in, right? And then we search within those narrow categories and we find somebody who we love. We don't randomly search among all people, you know, for this for the the unicorn and rainbows experience, right? Mm -hmm. We 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 make economic decisions that narrow our choice, and then within those narrow choices, then we look to have that experience, right? The rainbows <laughs> and unicorns experience. Um, and, and so uh, I think that there's there is, you know, this relationship between. Love that is the kind of the biological, physical reaction that you get when meeting somebody, um, and then choosing to to um, um, identify that feeling as love, right? I mean, we could meet all sorts of people who kind of make our hearts skip a beat, but we're the ones who ultimately say this feeling is love, and I want. To to pursue this feeling. And that's the element of choice. And that's really where economic, the economic story comes in. Because of course, in the absence of choice, there is no economic story. I wanted to ask you about some of the, the counterintuitive conclusions you come to okay. in your book. Yeah. Um, yeah, like you talk about safe sex, teen pregnancy, STD rates. Um, so just a couple of questions. Um, what policies, I don't know if this is too far out of line, but like what policies do you think we could, or practices we could put in place to encourage safe sex? Because some, as you've written about, we, we put into place and then they seem to backfire terribly. Yeah. Or others we think they wouldn't be effective at all, but then somehow they are very effective. Yeah, you know, I mean, to me it wouldn't be, um, it's, not, it's less about, uh, practices and policies and, and what is shaping our incentives for behavior. Um, and this is why, I mean, you know, the most obvious one is um, the, the, the really, truly remarkable rise in, in births outside of marriage um, that has quickly followed on the heels of the availability of birth control, right? And that is so counterintuitive, right? The fact that the it, it seems like the more that women have been able to control their fertility, the more births that we experience um, that are that are unplanned, and that's that's a surprising outcome. But you know, with the 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 issue there is not that um, you know people who are taking the birth control pill are, are becoming pregnant. The the, the issue there is that um, with the new birth control technology came social change. And it's that social change that led to the higher number of births, right? Um, you know, the amount of sex outside of marriage um, increased really quite dramatically after birth control pill became available in the 1960s, and then it was legalized into the 1970s. Um, and then when they went out and, and, then, and when researchers surveyed women in the 1970s um, who were newly participating in this um, uh, landscape of sex before marriage, Many of them not only were not using birth control pill, but actually didn't even know that it was available. Um, they were responding to social change. They weren't responding to the availability of technology. So essentially what happened was 
the technology becomes available, certain individuals respond to that change in the technology, their behavior becomes social norm, and then others respond to the change in the social norm as the behavior becomes destigmatized. And then it's those women who are experiencing higher rates of, of, of birth outside of, of um outside of marriage and and then the same thing the same get seeing the same experience with uh, sexually transmitted diseases um and so you know the 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 challenge then here is to recognize that there's a relationship between technological advances and social change and that those relationships are often uh incredibly difficult to predict right I'm um, actually even in even one of my the more favorite ones that I'm telling that the stories I'm telling at the moment is well for, well first of all I should back up I'm I'm, I'm currently working on um, uh, sex with robots so I'm looking at how sex bots and availability of sex bots will induce social change mm -hmm. sex bot induced social change mm -hmm. this is my my current thing I've been working on so I've been looking for historic stories about where technology has induced social change and one of the ones um, they've been looking at is a relationship between electrification. So an old technology, right? We, we, we started getting, it was over 100 years ago, we had electrification into our homes. But, you know, electrification led to, um, had two effects in, in terms of marriage, is that it made possible all of the appliances that we have today that replace women's labor in the home. And they changed the nature of paid labor to make it easier for women to participate in the paid labor market mm -hmm. because labor became less a uh, brawn based, you know, it was less of a reward to have that upper body strength that, that men have. Um, and so electrification changed the nature of marriage and it made marriage um, less about production, the story that we told earlier and more about love. And as I've already said, is that change in the nature of relationships that, that made it easier for us to imagine a world in which we have equal marriage for access for, for, um, you know, outside of the traditional male-female marriage. So there is actually a story, a convincing story, that can be told about elect electrification in the home and same-sex marriage. I mean, who could have possibly anticipated that social change in response to that technologies? And there's many, many stories like this. And and so I think that the, the answer to the question um, about how we um, shape our society, I think that the, the answer is think more carefully um, about the relationship between technology and social change. The one that springs to mind in res relation to the question you asked me about sexually transmitted diseases um, is that the, these new technologies that people are working on that will allow people to self-test for sexually transmitted diseases, um, which I find, I find incredibly alarming. Right, um, you know, people think that this is a this is a wonderful new innovation that you can go, you know, you can be out at a nightclub, you know, dancing with your friends. You could meet somebody you could want to have casual sex with them, um, and so you know, you both hop over to the vending machine that is that is selling these self administering um, sexually transmitted disease tests. Um, you test yourselves and then you you have unprotected sex because you've you've received this information that you're safe, right? Um, but of course, the the tests only test for a limited number. Of, they don't test for HIV AIDS. Um, they don't test for chlamydia. I'm not sure they test for syphilis, which is significantly on the rise. They test, I think, just for gonorrhea. I, I'm not sure which ones they test for, but the you see the the story here is right. The 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 technology that allows us to test for the diseases actually 
could it could lead to an increase in the number of, of diseases. And actually, you know, and, and just like with the birth control pill, you know, it will encourage people who are who are not, you know, on the market for unprotected sex um, to enter that market, right? Which will will it, yeah, because they, they lose their bargaining power, and then that leads to just a, a, a moving away from condom use full stop, right? Um, and so, you know, we're seeing, and this is the thing that's so surprising, is we're seeing teenagers um, are way less sexually active today than they were in the past. University students have fewer sexual partners than they did back. It was much funner, by the way, <laughs> when I was a teenager. Um, but the, 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 we're seeing reductions in, in, in uh, the, the sexual behavior of young people, but we're seeing the STD rates go up. I mean, why is that? It, we have to we have to spend a little bit of time thinking about what causes that behavior, that that change, sorry, change in the outcomes. Wait, so how are sex bots going to change our relationships? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is something I'm still working on. But I mean, I mean, we talk about so so it, during the Victorian period, uh, there was this kind of disconnect between sex and marriage. Um, in the beginning of the 20th century, marriage became more about sex. Um, and less about other things. I think that one potential for sex bonds um, is to uncouple sex and marriage, right? That you could actually enter, you know, you could meet somebody with whom you want to have a family, for example, but that you're not really that interested in, in having a sexual relationship with. I mean, there's options now for having, you know, you could you could find other arrangements, but you know, sex bonds could 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 be a pathway to making that happen, right? Um, you know, or um, uh, the ability of, or, or willingness of people to stay together in relationships, you know, for a lot of, uh, particularly for women, you know, they, they're interested in their sexual, their sex <laughs> with their partner uh, is not forever lasting, uh, as we know, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, sex bots might make it possible for people to stay together, um, and, you know, and actually continue to be monogamous, if that's what they they hope for, um, but still have active sex lives with technology. Yeah. Interesting. It's like an increasing, like an increasing specialization in marriage and in everything else. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, you're, you're outsourcing your <laughs> sex life, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, and then uh, people, you know, it's funny because um, I've been so I've been reading a lot about sex bots and what people are saying because this course is this amazing much of a pearl clutching over the idea. Of this yeah, my only fear would be that we think of like s sex is a completely qualitatively different thing between a person and a machine that it might not it, it might not substitute in the right way. Well, I guess so. I I mean I. I mean, let's face it, there's lots of women who are having sex with machines now, right? There's no shortage of this going on, right? Um, lots of married women who are doing this, too. And the, uh, so I think that, that, that it, it, I guess it depends what the technology looks like, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people talk about the idea of intimacy, right? Oh, yeah. But, you know, we have been proven to have, be very capable of having, a caring type relationships with inanimate objects, right? Like um, the one study I think that is is really interesting about this is where they um, they have a little um, dog, robotic dog. It's a toy that just walks around and barks, yaps, 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 right? Um, and it's it's adorable, right? It's cute. 
It's cute. You cute. You love it. And then the researcher says, "Okay, punch the dog," and people won't do it, right? Because they feel an intimate connection with it. Uh, it's not that hard to imagine that you could achieve the same thing with a robot, right? Um, and then, you know, it's also too that we we might overstate the the. Um, the role that sex plays in providing us with intimacy in our lives. I mean, you can have physical, caring, non-sexual relationships with your friends, right? Uh, yeah, or you could, you or you have. I mean, you have. You really have intimate relationships with your children. You know, my daughter is a grown woman, but when she comes over here, she'll often sit and cuddle with me on the sofa. We get that kind of those. Those we we can't we can't have those kind of non-sexual relationships. So, I don't know, and it's it's. Um, it's a complex issue. And, and, you know, the thing about writing about the social change in the future with sex bots, of course, you just open yourself up for mockery for future generations, for future generations. Like, I read this hilarious book chapter that was written at the beginning of the 21st century by an economist. Boy, she got that all wrong. But because, of course, we, we can't predict these types of social change, right? All we can do is, is possibly try. But I think that it's... Uh, I think it's interesting. I was going to say one of the interesting articles I read about the sex bot is that is it once sex bots be um, are uh, made available, men will no longer be willing to assume the burden that is marriage. And I'm like, how? Wait, 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 wait here. Okay. Yeah, women. First of all, you know, 35 percent of, of of households in which both people are working, the woman earns more. Women doing the the the, the lion's share of work at home. Where is this? Where is this burden of marriage that men are assuming? Um, but then there's the there's the other issue here, is that the 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 whole foundation on which society lies, the idea that that the reason why men invest in in their careers and and is so that they can get married, and and that that only that that that's that that's that we need that needs to persist so that society persists, is is founded on the idea that men need somewhere convenient to you know put their penises, and so that's the foundation of society. Yes, that's 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 all. They, yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, that that's insane because marriage gives men far more than, than easy access to sex. And the idea that men would wholesale abandon marriage just because sex, easy sex became available, it just doesn't actually make any sense, right? And, and, and you add to the fact that men want more children than women do, right? Men will continue to marry for their reason. Um, what do you think the future is of the, ex the, the sex market, like the explicit sex market? Do you think it should be legal? Do you think that would be safer? Do you think we're moving in that direction? So, um, we're, we're, I mean, the, our current government has, has committed to revising our prostitution laws, and, and we currently have some of the harshest prostitution laws in the, in the world. Um, so it's, it's hard to imagine that it's not moving towards some form of, of legalization. Um, the sex, sex markets are incredibly complex. Um, it's a whole other topic, you know, that we could, we could have. Um, but I will confine my comments to this is that, um, technology has changed, uh, the, the sex markets. It's, it's increased the, the, um, 
the number the, the number of women who are participating as sellers of sex on the market. Um, and that's because it, it's allowed them to, you know, work from the relative safety of their homes um, and also to work in, in, in a way that is quite anonymous, right? So that they, they don't pay the same stigma costs because they can hide their participation um, in the market. And so there has been a big increase in the number of women who are on the sex market um, in, in probably the last 10 or 15 years. But at the same time, uh, the number of men who are buying on the market is actually in decline. And it's in decline because there are so many more options available to them uh, outside the sex market. You know, back to Tinder again, you know, is, is that there are, there are women who want to participate in casual sexual relationships, don't need to be paid to, to participate in casual sex relationships. Um, and so I think that the, the, the next generation of men... Um, you know, the current, the current people, current generation that are just coming up into their twenties, I just don't see them participating in sex markets, um, the way that, that the older generations have. So I think that, that prices will fall, right? Um, they have to, it, it, it just seems that that's the, the, the logical conclusion. And then as prices fall, um, fewer women will be willing to participate on the market, right? Because the, yeah, they, it's it's a costly market to be on for a variety of different reasons. That that there is no, there is no such thing as safe participation on the market. And I know I understand that that will upset people when I say that. But uh, women who participate in the market are are exposed to risk, and so that's one of the reasons they're paid so well is to compensate them for taking on that risk. Um, and and so as prices fall, I think that, that there there will be a, a fundamental shift in the market. Um, can our laws, laws make sex workers safer? Yes. Um, it can make some sex workers safer, um, but there will always be women who are exposed to risk, and that's because the Canadian government cannot ensure a safe brothel spot for all women. You know, there will always be women who are children or and women who are on the streets and women who have... Um, uh, are otherwise marginalized that they will always be exposed to as risk as long as the market takes place on the street. It is such an incredibly complicated issue, right? Uh, and there's so much dissent among the various groups that, that are interested in, in seeing how the market plays out. Um, but, you know, this is another place where I think that technology will play a role, right? The Wanshed is optimistic and emphasizes that social change tends to follow on the heels of economic change. Elutz calls on us to take a more active role in changing the social structures around love. She argues that the sexual revolution freed us from taboos about sex, but didn't replace them with any norms about how to conduct ourselves in sexual relationships. Elutz also calls on us to address still existing gender inequalities. Her account picks out how the dating market is different for men and women, and thus produces different incentive structures which can disadvantage women, making women more insecure and dependent on the decisions and validation of men. Additionally, though there are gender differences in the fear of commitment, the fact that we're incentivized to form a consumptive rather than a productive unit reduces everyone's willingness to commit. Achit is unmoved by the problem, stating that unions may take longer to form, but they're of a higher quality. Elutz emphasizes that it causes a lot of suffering, but she's hopeful, stating that love can actually be a way out of the indecisiveness and paradox of choice that pervades modern life. Loving someone can be the push to overcome our constant indecisiveness about what we think and feel. She says that passionate love, and I quote, provides a very important source for understanding and enacting what we care about. This kind of love radiates from the core of the self, mobilizes the will, and synthesizes a variety of one's desires. 
This kind of love is character building and ultimately is the only one to provide a compass by which to lead one's life. Because of our current social and economic conditions, we now have the ability to renegotiate the terms of our relationships. After years of taking the structure of our romantic relationships for granted, we now have the space to ask, what do we want from love? <laughs>